name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, Amin. Today is the third Sunday of the blessed Coptic month of Tut. And as we read from the Gospel of St. Luke, the story, which is very familiar, I'm sure, to all of us, about Zacchaeus, the tax collector. Zacchaeus, who ran and climbed up a sycamore tree in order to see Christ, who was passing through the village or the town of Jericho. And when Christ saw him in the tree, he invited him to come down and visited Zacchaeus in his home, and we know about Zacchaeus' great conversion and the change that happened in his life when Christ entered into not only his home, but into his heart and his life. Um, it's good, of course, for us to always try to have a little bit of context when we try to explain the gospel uh, narratives or the parables or the stories of the miracles. And uh, one of the obviously important aspects of this story is that Zacchaeus is pointed out to be a tax collector. And uh, the term tax collector appears, if you look at just in the Synoptic Gospels, which is Matthew, Mark, and Luke, it appears about 21 times. And in every single time that the word tax collector is used in those 21 times, it's also associated with other words like tax collectors and sinners, or tax collectors and harlots. Um, so clearly, the association of a tax collector in the time of Christ was that a tax collector, for some reason, was a great sinner, was associated with murderers and harlots and others who had um, significantly opposed God and broke the law of God. And uh, this was one of the accusations that they made against the Lord Christ, that he befriended sinners, tax collectors, that he ate with them, that he visited their homes. For example, in the Gospel of St. Mark, very early on in the second chapter, we read, and the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? So very early on in the ministry of our Lord, he was rebuked by the leaders of the, of the, the temple, the uh, leaders of the religion of the time, Israel, uh, because he reached out and interacted with the so-called tax collectors and sinners. Now, why, of course, uh, were the tax collectors hated so much? I mean, none of us love to, to pay taxes, but we don't necessarily assume that every tax collector or anybody who works for the IRS is a sinner. Um, so there was something else obviously going on at this time. And we know that the Romans, of course, were occupying uh, Palestine, and, uh, and so everybody who was under their uh, authority, under their dominion, uh, that was subject to them, had to pay tribute, had to pay taxes. And the way that these taxes were collected was that they, they had local uh, people that were from the Jews that were essentially, uh, they would bid. They would, they would bid for a certain area how much they would raise taxes for the Romans. So, for example, someone would say, for, for the area of Jericho, I can, this year I can bring in let's say $1 million of taxes. And another person would say, I can do better than that, I can bring in $1.2 million of taxes. And so usually the highest bidder was called a tax farmer because he would raise taxes uh, as a farmer would raise crops, <clears throat> would be given the, the contract, if you will, would be given the uh, ability to be the tax collector or to organize local tax collectors in the area. So Zacchaeus was not just a tax collector, he was, as the gospel says, he was a chief tax collector. So he, he was overseeing other tax collectors in the area of Jericho. Now, 
when somebody was um, the highest bidder in order to be able to be the tax collector, it meant that, of course, he was betraying his own people because he was, his own wealth was on the shoulders of the people whom he defrauded. So he would raise not only enough taxes that he promised to the Romans, but he would raise as much as he wanted, and the difference between what he promised the Romans and what he raised would be his profit. So he, for example, again, he promised the Romans to raise $1 million in taxes, but he goes to the people and collects $1.5 million of taxes, and of course, all the Romans care about is what was contracted, what was promised. So that's why <clears throat> not only were they hated because they associated themselves with the oppressor, they worked for the oppressor in betraying their own people, but they were thieves, they were robbers, they were associated with the worst of humanity uh, because of their betrayal of the most innocent and fragile of, of society. So they were not welcomed um, in the synagogues and in the temple, and they certainly would not have been welcomed by the religious leaders of the time. So it's clear then um, that why the gospel associates tax collectors with sinners and harlots and murderers and so on. Now what's beautiful though about the gospel is that Jesus chooses among his 12 disciples um, tax collectors like Matthew and uh, zealots like um, Judah, or Simon the Zealot um, and fishermen, right, among other sort of characteristics that, uh, that uh, attributed to the, the 12. And th this would have been a group that would have hated each other, right, because um, the, the fishermen would have hated the tax collectors because they knew that they robbed them of their livelihood. And the zealots were the ones who were rebelling even aggressively against the Romans, and therefore they would have killed anybody who associated themselves with the Romans or helped the Romans or assisted the Romans in their oppression of, of uh, the Jews. So you can imagine that these sort of three groups, uh, these three personalities, formed a very eclectic um, group of disciples that would have been a recipe for disaster. It would have been a recipe for mutiny. Right? But on the contrary, what Christ does is he takes these groups of people that should hate each other and he forms this beautiful brotherhood, right? And he shows himself to truly be the Prince of Peace. He who can take the worst of our humanity and the worst of our society and bring about wholeness and peace when we all look up to him. And um, <clears throat> the, there's, a, um, there's a beautiful scene from one of my favorite um, movies about Christ. It's the uh, 1977 movie, Jesus of Nazareth. And there have been many movies that have been made about the life of Christ. But for me, this is still my favorite. I don't know how many of you have seen it. You can find, I think, the whole thing. It's like six hours on YouTube in, in three parts, I believe. And um, there's one scene in there that is so beautiful that I encourage you to find it on YouTube. You can find just this one scene. If you search on YouTube, Jesus of Nazareth, prodigal, prodigal son. And there's one that's eight minutes and there's one that's 11 minutes. Click on the one that's 11 minutes. Now, when Jesus told the parable of the prodigal son in Luke, the context is different than the movie, but let me just contrast them. In the Gospels, uh, 
Jesus is reaching out to the sinners, tax collectors and sinners and, and, and those who are despised. And he goes and visits them and eats with them. And the Pharisees, the religious leaders and the, the righteous um, are, are complaining. And so Jesus says the parable of the prodigal son about two sons, an older brother and the younger brother. Right? The younger brother represents here the sinner who leaves his father's house. And the older brother is the one who is, remains in his father's house. And he's pointing, of course, to the religious, the so-called righteous. Right. But in the, in, the, in the movie, Jesus of Nazareth is a little bit different. So in the movie, Jesus has chosen um, some of his disciples already, including Peter and Andrew, from their fishing uh, trade. And Peter is struggling because he sees um, Jesus reach out to Matthew and tell Matthew to follow him and be a disciple. And Peter is furious. He's confused. He's like, I, I, I saw the miracle of the great catch of fish that he did with me. I know he's a, a prophet. I know he, is, he touched my heart and changed me in an instant. And yet, why is he reaching out to Matthew? And he calls Matthew in the movie a blood-sucking and many other things, right? And, and he's furious. And Matthew is ecstatic that Jesus agreed to come to his house for a feast. So there's this procession that goes to Matthew's house, and it's all of these people who are the outcasts, right? There's music and drinking and dancing and uh, the tax collectors and harlots, and, and it's sort of this group that any righteous person in Israel would have stayed away from, a mile away from. And then Peter is walking along the seashore, and he hears the music, and he hears the celebration, and he goes towards Matthew's house, and he's standing at the door, he's standing at the door of Matthew's house, and Jesus gathers everybody from his guests, and he says, I want to tell you a story. So he begins to tell them the story of the prodigal son. And Matthew is fixated on, on Christ, as is all of the guests. All of the guests have left the music and the dancing, and they're all amazed at looking at Christ and hearing him speak about this, this beautiful return of a lost son. And Peter etches closer and closer and he's listening and he starts to look within himself. And then Jesus turns and he gazes at Peter. He sees him outside and he says the last part of the parable about the older son who refused to come in to celebrate. And he's looking at Peter and he's saying, my son, you are with me always, and all that I have is yours, but it is right that we celebrate and that we, and that we feast and that we rejoice because this, your brother, was dead and is now alive. And so at that moment, Peter rushes into the house and he stands before Christ and he says, forgive me, Lord, for I am a stupid man. And then him and Matthew embrace and they become two unified disciples in this beautiful group of 12. It's a very touching scene. I encourage you to watch it today. So Jesus targets the sinner with his redemptive love. 
He shows us in the sinner, and we can't see it outside of the sinner, what the love of God looks like. If Jesus simply showed his love to the righteous, we would have no concept of what God's love is truly like. Sister Ruth Burroughs says, God does not simply forgive, but he is forgiveness. He doesn't show mercy, he is mercy. Very much like the sun cannot be without its rays, Christ cannot be without love and mercy and forgiveness. So there's nothing that we do that turns God towards us. There's nothing that we do that brings about a change in God in order that he forgives us. All we can do is receive and be open to this everlasting stream of mercy and forgiveness that is who he is. And so Jesus comes into the world, the eternal second person of the blessed Trinity, and takes on our flesh in order to reveal to us this great love in the person of Zacchaeus and Matthew, the harlot, and all of the others who fall under the category of sinners of whom I am chief, and I'm sure all of us can say the same of ourselves. And there's a beautiful quote by Father Matthew the poor. He says, without the sinner, we are, neither, we are able neither to comprehend the love of Christ nor to measure its depth. Divine love appears as most signified in our sight when we come to know it in its condescension to us while we are fallen into a state of misery. Whoever is poor, hungry, sinful, or fallen, or ignorant is the guest of Christ. So the lower we are, the more the love of Christ reveals itself to us. And uh, Sister Ruth Burroughs, she, she tells uh, a story of a parable that she came across, a French parable that she came across. And she says, a widow, a widow who had an only son, took everything that she had and left her and lived a wasteful life like the prodigal son. And every time he came back when he was at a loss, she would give him whatever she had as her only begotten son. And he came numerous times to his mother after having wasted whatever he had, and she continued to give him. Until one time he came and she had nothing to give him. And in a drunken fury, he beat his mother and he tore out her heart and he threw it on the floor. It's just a parable, guys. Okay. He took out her heart and he threw it on the floor. And as he ran out of the house, he fell over her heart and he fell. He, he's, he's, uh, he tumbled over her heart and he fell. And her heart spoke and said, have you hurt yourself, my beloved son? Are you okay, my beloved son? This is the heart of Christ. This is the heart of Christ, that no matter what we do, we rip it out of him, we stomp on it, but when we trip over it, it cries out to us and says, are you okay? Are you well, my beloved? Have you hurt yourself? Can I soothe your pain? Can I bring about your wholeness again? So this is what we see today in the Gospel of Zacchaeus. 
the story of Zacchaeus, is this love that cannot be shattered. It can't be exhausted. There's nothing we can do, again, to bring about that love or to, or to have that love turn against us. It's simply our own disposition. And, and so in Zacchaeus, we see three important principles about the spiritual life. Three dispositions that we, ha- we must carry within ourselves continuously. The first one might sound strange. It's dis- dissatisfaction. None of us want to be dissatisfied. That sounds like unhappiness. But dissatisfaction here means dissatisfaction with all that is not God. Dissatisfaction with everything that belongs to this corruptible world. Dissatisfaction that belongs to all that is opposed to God. And this is usually the first step of a genuine relationship with God and a deepening relationship with God is when we expose that dissatisfaction or that dissatisfaction is exposed within us by God himself, as we will see in another beautiful story. And we begin to see that this world oppresses us, that this world is cruel, that this world is powerless to satisfy us. And that's what happened to Zacchaeus. He was rich. He was an authoritarian figure among his people. He, he had everything that his heart desired from a worldly standpoint. And yet something within him was dissatisfied to the point that he was willing to make a mockery out of himself to climb a tree and to get a glimpse of this prophet who was passing by. Something inside of him said, see if this is better than what you have. See if this is what your heart is aching for. See if this is the fulfillment of all your hopes. And that's all Christ needed was that opening of dissatisfaction to break open Zacchaeus' heart. And so in the same way, each one of us, we we must rejoice in our dissatisfaction. We must expose our dissatisfaction. We must renounce the things of this world that falsely cry out to us that they are there to satisfy us. And we must turn ourselves again like Zacchaeus on that tree, that beautiful tree, that tree of grace, that tree of of life that Zacchaeus climbed and received newness of his own life. The second attitude of Zacchaeus that we see is desire. Dissatisfaction and desire go together. We are told in the Gospels that that Zacchaeus sought to see who Jesus was. Not simply Zacchaeus sought to see Jesus, but he sought to see who Jesus was. He had a desire to know the person, to discover the mystery behind this prophet of Nazareth. And this means that Zacchaeus had a desire to know the Lord Jesus Christ, to know him personally, to encounter him, to establish some sort of relationship, good or bad, with him. And this true desire can never remain inactive or passive in us because in any relationship, when desire is lost, lukewarmness sets in. As one spiritual father said, Lukewarmness is a pathology of love 
that puts the ideals of the Christian to sleep. Let me say that again. Lukewarmness is a pathology of love that puts the ideals of the Christian to sleep. And you can think of any relationship, a marital relationship, a relationship between parent and child, a relationship between two friends, a relationship between servants among themselves. As soon as lukewarmness sets in, it means that love is cold. It means that the desire to see with beauty and wonder and surprise and excitement, the other person is lost. And the other person becomes a fatiguing presence in my life. The other person becomes somebody who wearies me, not lifts me and not brings me to heights of, of pleasure and joy. So when we lose desire, we can be sure that uh, lukewarmness sets in. And this is the beginning of how Satan will, 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 will sort of uh, squeeze us of all that's left in us, of, of genuine love for Christ and for, for the church. So Zacchaeus represents the person who has this hunger, this desire. Blessed are those, what, who hunger and thirst, for they shall be filled. Right? Be very careful not to lose that hunger for Christ, not to lose that desire for Christ. If, it's, if, if you feel that it's, you're losing that desire, right, consider it the greatest tragedy of your life. Find whatever you must find to rekindle that love. I don't have the answer for you any more than I have the answer for myself at the moment that lukewarmness sets in, but find, find something. Just as if you are if you are insisting to save your marriage, you will do whatever you can to save your marriage. You will read books, you will go to counseling, you will read uh, good articles on the internet, you will go to the priest, you will, you will go to confession and repent. You will find a way to rekindle that, that love in that marriage. So don't, don't wait passively and say, oh, I'm lukewarm, I feel cold, I'm waiting for, for God to do something. No, we, we, must, we must rekindle that desire Christ is, is working with us. His grace is working with us. But we also have to do our part, which is to seek him, to hunger for him, to thirst for him, to desire him. And then the third one is dependence. Dependence. Uh, before, I, before I get to dependence, one beautiful other analogy that uh, Elder Paisius mentions, he says, and I think I gave you this analogy before, is what he calls this, this holy or good restlessness. You know, rest, again, restlessness like dissatisfaction is usually a negative word. We don't like to be restless. But there is a holy restlessness, a good restlessness, when again, I am anxious to rekindle that love with God. I'm anxious to uh, be, be faithful to my relationship with God. And so Elder Paisius, he speaks about the, 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 the dog who's hunting the rabbit, right? The dog who is close to his, his owner and obedient to his owner, but when he sees this, this rabbit, he exhausts himself chasing this rabbit. And he has joy in the chase. He has joy in the pursuit. He has joy in the possibility of, of possessing that which he's chasing after. And he puts aside his fatigue, he puts aside his tiredness, he puts aside his thirst and his hunger, and he keeps until he either catches the rabbit or it's out of his sight. And Elder Paisu says, this is what the Christian must be like. 
So then the third one I said was dependence. Zacchaeus recognizes today that he is, in fact, a great sinner. And that this moment of conversion is just a beginning. A beginning of a life of grace. A beginning in which he recognizes now that he is capable, as you and I are capable, of every sin. Because you and I are made of flesh and bones. You and I are born with the passions that occupy our mind and our hearts and our, and our thoughts and our emotions. And all of us are inclined to evil. And so, none of us are different from one another. It doesn't matter what rank you are. It doesn't matter what position you hold. It doesn't matter what, what you're called to in life. Our, our fundamental human nature is the same. And so, the disposition that Zacchaeus comes to today is this one of true self-knowledge. He knows himself to have wronged his brothers and sisters. He knows himself to be capable, not only in the past as he was, but he knows himself to be capable of every sickness, spiritual sickness, of every sin. And so, like him, we must live with this constant dependency on the grace of God. We can never be satisfied in our own strength, our own achievements, our own accomplishments, our own virtues. Whatever somebody says to you about something that's good in you, immediately recognize that this does not belong to you. This is the gift of God. And very easily it can be removed. Very easily. No matter how long you think you worked on it, no matter how long you think you, you built up this treasure of virtue, in a moment it will be taken away when the grace of God turns its back on you or me. And so, to stand before him always naked, to stand before him always with empty hands, to stand before him always recognizing that, Lord, if you turn your face from me for one second, I am lost. I am, I am re in, in, in fact, before my death, I have died and returned to dust. So, dissatisfaction, desire, and dependency. And finally, Again, a beautiful story about how the Lord sometimes breaks into our life when we're unconscious of our dissatisfaction. Sometimes that dissatisfaction does not need to be even recognized yet. Perhaps we feel it as a wound. Perhaps we feel it as something that oppresses us, but we don't know what it is. We, we don't know that it is God that we are seeking. We don't know that it is something else that is searching for us. Perhaps we think we just need more of the same. Perhaps we think that this dissatisfaction that I feel is because I don't have enough of what I already possess and therefore I need more of it. And sometimes this unconscious dissatisfaction is again all that God needs to break through our lives. So there's a story of Elder Paisius of um, a man who was, to say it with the uh, PG terms was an adult film producer, um, and he was very rich. And so in, in many ways, we can liken him to Zacchaeus, somebody who oppressed people through his trade, somebody who brought people to a certain form of uh, sin or slavery through his own uh, wealth by his own, and, and acquiring wealth through it. And he was very happy. He had a beautiful, uh, expensive apartment in Thessaloniki, and People were telling him about this uh, saintly figure, Elder Paisius. And he said, this guy is uh, a charlatan. He's fooling all of you. He's a spinster. He's, 
You know, he's not the real deal. And they kept telling, no, 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 this man is he's a prophet and he does miracles and he's a man of God. And so he said, I will go and I will prove to you that this man is a fraud. So I will read to you his own words. He says, on that day, the day that he went to go to visit Elder Paisius, he says, as usual, there was a multitude of people around him. About 200 people every day used to visit his cell. And they sat in the courtyard waiting for their turn to enter to speak with the, with the, with the elder. He said, I sat in the corner, silent and observing what was taking place. After quite some time, all of the vis visitors left, and only three of us remained, including myself. Elder Paisius, after everybody had left and there was just the three of us, he came and he said, let me offer you a treat. And he brought on a platter, he brought on a tray some sweets, and he started to offer the first two people one of the sweets. And when he reached me, he looked at me and he dropped my sweet in the dirt. And then he picked it up and he said, oh, I dropped it. And he picked it up and he, he said, now you, pick it up and eat it. Elder Paisius, he said, I dropped your sweet, pick it, pick it up and eat it. So the man, of course, protested, and he said, you expect me to eat this dirty treat? And then Elder Paisius replied and said, why do you serve dirt to the people? The man said, I froze. I got up and left, and I went straight to a motel. I couldn't sleep. The next day, I went back to him, to Elder Paisius, Elder, I need to speak with you. Here's an interesting thing for us to consider. Why does he want to speak to him? Why does he care? He knows what he's doing, so what if he's exposed? Other people know what he's doing. Why does it matter now? What's happening in his heart that causes him to go back to Elder Paisius? Elder, I want to speak to you. Elder Paisius said to him, no discussion. Go back, sell your cameras, sell your apartment in Thessaloniki, close down all of your production, and then come back and we'll talk. Again, he said, I froze. How did he know about the apartment? How did he know about all of the equipment? He said, I left his cell and obeyed. Again, ask yourself, why? Why did he obey? He said, I sold everything and I closed down the business. Now, like Zacchaeus, he probably didn't know how he's gonna make his livelihood now. Everything now he threw away. So he says, I closed down. He said, I, a month later, after I made sure that I wiped the slate clean, he said, I came back to him. This time when he saw me, he welcomed me with a smile and he said, come on in and let us talk. So the man then made his confession and he changed his life and became a new person. So God has his way even in our dissatisfaction that we are unconscious of because we are attracted to the things of this world. He has a way of breaking through. And he, again, Zacchaeus, and this story of uh, an elder Paisius, as in the many great stories of conversion, teach us, again, the importance of keeping within your heart that dissatisfaction, that desire, and that dependency on God. And to him be all glory now and forever and to the ages of ages. Amen. Buzz.